0: and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much, Hui. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're well. Can I add my welcome to that of Darren's? Uh, My name's Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Uh, Hello to those of you who are joining us on our live stream as well. Uh, Before we start, can I warmly encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting international China concern. We've just heard uh, before from David um, and they're an incredible organization that, that seeks to care for the most vulnerable and support families in mainland China and in doing so, uh, providing for better lives, but also shining the light of Jesus. Uh, it's an incredible way of you practically providing support. My wife and I feel privileged to uh, sponsor one of the children in, in the orphanages in Changsha. Um, and it's, it's something worth you prayerfully considering as well. Uh, Do keep the bulletin open as you can follow the Bible passage. As we think about this new series, uh, let me pray for us as we come to God's Word. Uh, Lord God, you tell us in your Word that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know us, nothing is hidden from your sight. Uh, You love us and that you have a purpose and a plan for us. Um, As we come once again to your Word... We are thankful that you have revealed your truth to us. So we pray that we can sit under the authority of your word, that we can understand uh, who we are and how we can live lives that honor you for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. I think I can say without fear of contradiction that the human body is extraordinary. I mean, just in the time that I've said this sentence. Uh, your body has produced a million red blood cells. Uh, we, are, we are so packed with tiny cells, and yet at the same time, you could say that we're, we're positively enormous. Uh, if you could somehow rip out your lungs and do this, uh, and spread them out, uh, they would cover an entire tennis court. Um, all the blood vessels in your body, if you strung them together, would go two and a half times around the planets. Uh, we, we, we've got so much DNA in us. Uh, in, in every cell, there is a meter of DNA. A meter of DNA in every cell. And if you, uh, we've got so many cells that if we strung together all those strands of, of, of DNA, that would go for 10 billion miles. To the, to the length of, of, of Earth to Pluto. Apparently, our, our bodies um, consist of around 37.2 trillion cells, operating in perfect coordination, by and large, all, all the time. Um, an ache, a twinge, a bruise, a bout of indigestion, a, a spot of cold, are the only things that really remind us most of the time that, that things aren't always perfect. Now, the thing is, we don't often think about our bodies too much, unless we find that there is something wrong with our bodies. It's not like you've said to yourself this morning, goodness me, my elbow is working well today, unless there's something been bad with your elbow beforehand. But we also know that, that in our society, there's a lot of confusion about the body. There are all sorts of contradictory messages that we get about the human body. You see, on the one hand, we're we're, we're, we live in a world where physical beauty, physical health, athletic prowess are held in such high esteem that we can't, we can't help but feel influenced about how we think about ourselves by what we look like. Um, we're constantly being told by advertising, media, entertainment, the movies, the celebrities that we see, what we should look like unattainable, impossible standards of beauty, a sort that rarely make us feel satisfied about what we look like on the outside. And yet, on the other hand, we're also told a lot of the time that your physical body doesn't count for really who you are. Uh, You hear this more and more often, and it seems like the plot of every Disney movie, Um, you have to be true to yourself. You have to look inside to discover who you really are. Be true to yourself on the inside. Now, increasingly, who you are is determined not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. Um, Our bodies are less influential in who we really are. They're incidental to our identities. They're they're just a blank canvas upon which you can paint what you really feel like on the inside. You can alter your body, change it, um, add to it and mould to, to, to suit your, your, your inner self all the time. You can use your body to display on the outside what you really feel like on the inside. And so there are these contradictions. Yeah, on the one hand, we have these incredible standards of beauty that we feel as though we have to conform to, that make us often feel quite bad about ourselves. But we're also telling ourselves, my body isn't so important to who I am. Um, I can change my body to externalize my feelings of who I really am on the inside. In this rapidly changing society, there's a lot of confusion about about our bodies. Now, it's obviously no surprise that the Bible says a lot about our bodies. Um, We're told that God created our bodies. He made us. He cares for us. Our bodies matter to Him. Um, Our bodies mean something towards God. There's a plan and a purpose for our bodies so that we do not need to be confused. So today, we're beginning a new series called The Body, A Guide for Occupants. It's a title I borrowed from a Bill Bryson book, but you'd be pleased to know this is not a series about science or anatomy or physiology. I cannot talk about those things with any sort of authority. Instead, we want to explore those more important questions that the Bible asks us about our body, like, who am I? What's my body for? Why, why is my body broken? What's the future of my body? You'd know that our normal practice here on Sundays is to work through books of the Bible, verse after verse, chapter after chapter. It's what we call expository preaching. This series is going to be a little bit more topical. Yes, we go into depth in passages, but we move through the Bible, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about our bodies through the lens of the Bible's storyline, through creation, fall, redemption, glorification, and yes, in the process, we will be exploring uncomfortable, difficult questions as we come to submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible. Now, as we look and explore at at many of these difficult questions, occasionally I'm going to recommend further resources for you to use and we'll put those further resources in our sermon notes in the bulletin. Uh, One book that I can recommend straight from the outset is Sam Albury's excellent and accessible book, What God Has to Say About Your Bodies. You can find the title of that in the bulletin today. Now, for a little while, um, my sister-in-law, she's an emergency medicine doctor, and she she worked uh, for a helicopter retrieval and a helicopter emergency service. And for part of her training to prepare her for that job, involved simulating helicopter crashes one of the uh, drills involved being strapped into a cage that was about the size of a helicopter and that cage was submerged into a swimming pool spun around and left upside down and the whole idea was that as you found yourself underwater and buckled up um, you had to find your bearings reorientate yourself unbuckle yourself swim out of the cage and, and and to the surface in this situation of a crash finding your bearings was essential for survival if you did not find your bearings you were confused and disorientated and couldn't get your way out and it's the same thing for us finding our bearings in this world understanding our plan our purpose is crucial for us otherwise we end up being confused and disorientated, unable to understand God, unable to understand ourselves. So today we're going to start from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and we're going to see this very famous phrase that we're made in the image of God and in fact it's a phrase, it's a theme that goes all the way through the Bible and as we think about what it what the image of God is, we're going to have two points, what it means to be made in the image of God and secondly, the implications of being made in the image of God. And so, Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the grounds. And what does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? Well, there are all sorts of options. Uh, it could mean um, our soul or our, our, our spiritual potential. It could mean um, our appearance, our likeness, what we, what we look like, or our, or our capacity for rational thought, or our, capac- or our capacity for, 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 for moral well-being. It could be that we speak, something like that, or it could be a combination of all of the above. The reality is, Genesis 1 doesn't give us a precise definition of what it means, but if we look carefully, we can see that being made in the image of God involves two concepts, relationship and representation. So, first of all, relationship. Uh, These verses come in the context of a chapter whose subject is God. Uh, Genesis 1 isn't a scientific exploration of how the world was created, rather... It's an answer to the question, who created this world? God made everything. He's in charge. He alone rules all things. And so, since this chapter is all about God, the way we understand ourselves, first and foremost, is understanding ourselves in the context of a relationship with God. The whole structure of the six days of creation in Genesis 1 is to highlight the special place of humanity. The creation of humans comes on the sixth day, the last day. Days one to three were all about the world being formed, days four to six were all about the world being filled and then the climax comes, the stage is set for everything to happen on that last day, day six. By the end of verse 25, everything else has already been created. Verse 26, it's like we have this dramatic pause, this sense of anticipation and waiting until God says, Let us make mankind in our image. Humans are the main events, we're the climax. But I wonder if you noticed something. God said, Let us make mankind. In our image. Who's the us? What's, what's God talking about? Well, I think here, you get a very early hint at the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in three persons. God has always been in relationship. But as soon as He said, let us make mankind in our image, God says male and female He created them. You know, this means that the image in us doesn't just mean our relationship with God, it also means our relationship with one another. We're not built for the solitary life. That doesn't mean that we all must be married, but what it does mean is that we're created to be in deep personal Loving relationships with one another. We're not meant to live the solitary life. Part of being human means being connected with other people. It's how we're wired. Now, this is completely different, for instance, to the to the Buddhist worldview. Buddhism says that you must avoid suffering through detaching yourself, through avoiding attachments to anything in this life. You know, you if if you're gonna avoid being hurt you must avoid attachments that includes not being too attached to other people you can't avoid human relationships but don't overinvest. don't love too deeply even family members don't don't over invest otherwise when when a relationship gets taken away you, you suffer now that's not what genesis is saying Genesis is saying, being made in the image of God includes being in a relationship with Him, but also with other people. That's the first thing we're told. The image of God means relationship, but then secondly, it means representation. When God said, let us make mankind in our image, straight afterwards, He says, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, livestock, everything that crawls along the ground. Humans are made to be God's representative rulers on earth. Um, Let's think a little bit more about what that word image means for a moment. Uh, In the ancient world, rulers, kings, emperors, would often have statues made of them and these statues placed in all those places where they exercised authority or supposed to exercise authority. King Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, had his image placed on every single brick in the city of Babylon. King Cyrus of Persia, the the Roman Caesars and so on, had coins made. A few years ago, when I was in Israel, I bought a few ancient coins. Uh, The bronze one, we know, came from the first century because it has the image of Augustus Caesar on it. The other coin was from the second century, it has the image of Hadrian. Now, when these guys make coins with their image on them, it's their way of saying, this is mine. This belongs to me. When God says, we are made in his image, we are his image bearers, it's like we're we're meant to be God's vice regents. We are his... But we are his to rule and 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 care for the world that he created. Imagine a king who sends a representative out to act on his behalf and negotiate and deal with people. On the one hand that representative has enormous personal authority but then on the other hand that that representative is supposed to act in the interests and for the purposes of the king who sent him. Now We share God's representative authority over creation, which means we share in the work that He has been doing over creation. We share in bringing order out of chaos, in cultivating, in in caring for the creation that God has made. That's what our work is actually supposed to be about. And so, Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And care for it. Work is there from the very beginning as part of God's good creation. This is before the fall, before work became toilsome. There's lots that can be said about work, but for the time being, we, we, we see that as we work, there is a sense in which we're participating in God's work of creation because God's work hadn't finished after He rested. Rather, He put us in the garden to continue to work, to continue to bring order out of chaos, to continue to cultivate and care for His creation. And ultimately, when we're engaging in work, whether it's your paid vocational work or volunteer work or how you care for others about you, whatever it is you do, caring for people, healing, um, making, designing, whether, whether you're, a, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, an accountant, whether you're a stay-at-home mum, whether you're a designer or a salesperson, your work is not ultimately about furnishing your own agenda. It's not primarily about you achieving a whole lot of things or you earning all sorts of money so that you can have the lifestyle that you want. If God created us and placed us to work in the garden, we're supposed to continue in His work of caring for the world around us. And so in your work, in your vocation, we're supposed to ask ourselves, how can can my work contribute to the betterment of communities around me? How can it contribute to the flourishing of lives around me? It's not ultimately about me. Now, the term, the image of God, is so loaded, there's so much to it, relationship, representation. It shows us the value, the dignity of human life, that God has formed us and He has a purpose to us. Now, if that's what the image of God means, what what are the implications for us to be made in the image of God? I think there are at least three implications, one to do with our relationship with God, one to do with our relationship with one another and one one in how we view ourselves. So, firstly, what does this mean for our relationship with God? At the very least, since all humans have been made in the image of God, there is a sense in which all of us know that God exists deep down, we know that God is there, even if we don't want to admit it. Now, if there is no God, then yeah, you could say there is such a thing as moral feelings, but if there is no God, there would be no such thing as moral obligation, because everything would be relative, which means humans really have no more worth than, say, an animal or a plant. But deep down, we we know that that's not right because we believe that there is the difference between right and wrong and we live that way. If there is no God, then love would just be the chemical reaction bouncing around in us, you know, it, it, but we know that's not true and we don't live that way. You know, if, if, if there is no God, then we would just be the result of, of random forces, uh, molecules bouncing. But we know that's not the case and we don't live that way it's like we have this consciousness of God hardwired into us it's there deep down it's inescapable but to push things a little bit further if we're made in the image of God it means we relate to one another in a particular way if we're all made in God's image then that means we are all of equal dignity and worth not just some of us now think about an image Uh, Think about a mirror, I should say. Uh, a, a, A mirror bears the image of that object which it reflects. A mirror is created in such a way that it captures light and the form of an object and is able to reflect it back. In order to do this, the mirror must be in the sort of right position, right relationship of that which it's reflecting. It has to be positioned in the right way. Now, we're made... To be God's image bearers. We're meant to mirror God's glory. What do I mean by glory? Well, glory in the Bible means weight, substance, importance. We're meant to mirror God's glory to the rest of the world so the world knows God's significance and importance. That means we shouldn't try to reflect anything more than we reflect God. We shouldn't try to reflect the glory, the significance, the weights of something else more than God. But if you aren't positioned in the right way, if you don't have your your entire being, your body, your soul, your mind, your heart facing towards God, if you don't get your sense of significance and meaning and purpose and self-worth primarily from God, that it means you don't reflect Him properly. And as a consequence... You're mirroring, you're reflecting something else. You're facing something else for your true sense of worth. And if it's not God, you know, it's fragile and transitory. It's here one moment, gone the next. Look, if you try to reflect the glory of your job, if your career is where you get your real sense of value and self-worth, then what happens when your career is really hard, it doesn't doesn't work out the way you hoped, it's disappointing. What happens if your job gets taken away from you? Or if you try to reflect the glory of your lifestyle, your personal worth, what happens when the bank account gets drained? What happens, for instance, if you try to reflect the glory of your family? As important as family is, when we try to reflect the glory, the functionality, the success of our family. What happens when there are broken relationships in your family? What happens when your kids aren't meeting the standards that you want them to and you're just driving them and driving them and in in effect pushing them away from you? We were built to mirror God, to reflect his, His glory. If we don't do that, if we don't build our identity on Him, then it's like your, your life is a, is a house built on sands because we're made to image the glory of God. The second implication is how we relate to one another. Genesis doesn't say that only a few of us were made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. It says that all of us were made in the image of God. That means at least a few things. First of all, it means that human life is precious. Um, Just as you would consider an attack on, on a picture or a painting of yourself to be an act of hostility towards you, so God considers an attack on another human being made in His image to be an attack on His image. So any kind of oppression or um, violence, uh, exploitation, either to an individual or to a group of people, regardless of race or language, of, of uh, social class or even religion, is not simply a crime against justice. It's an attack on the dignity of human beings who have been made in the image of God and therefore an attack on God himself. Now, to push things a d- bit deeper, this should shape how we relate to one another. Now, so often we relate to the people around us, including those people who are closest to us, on some sort of imaginary social scale, Um, according to where they appear on that scale. And, and, And what that scale is depends on what you value the most. What you find most worthwhile, it could be your career choice or career success, it could be your looks, it could be your wealth, it could be your, your family background or, or, or family success. And we relate to other people according to where they are on that scale of value. We'll relate to them in a, in a manner of superiority or inferiority. We'll act inferior to people if we think they're succeeding more compared to us on whatever scale it is we value. Or we'll look down on people, have an attitude of superiority, depending on whether we think we're going better than them. It's so second nature, we, we, we do it all the time. But every single human being is made in the image of God, whether you're rich or poor, black, white, yellow, red, young or old, successful or not, functional or not, good-looking or not. The moment we treat people with any sense of favouritism, we forget that we're all made in the image of God, Our worth comes from Him, not from some sort of external, manufactured, temporary value. Thirdly, being made in the image of God affects how we think about ourselves. Um, Increasingly so in our modern society, particularly the the, the Western secularized society, how we view ourselves is that the, the, the real me, the real me is my my soul. my my spirit. Um, The body is simply a lump of matter that I'm connected to. It's like a a vessel, a receptacle, a container, Tupperware, so to speak, packaging for who I really am. Some of you might remember that movie years ago, Avatar. Um, I think it's still the highest grossing movie that ever made and um, I think there's a few sequels coming up because we've run out of ideas for movies. And this movie um, essentially is... Uh, about uh, uh, humans going to colonize another planet, another moon. It's not an original plot line, it's basically Pocahontas in space. And these humans are able to take on the bodies of these other race of beings. They're able to transport their consciousness into the other bodies and adopt these bodies. Now, it's getting across this idea that you you can still be yourself even if you adopt the body of a different species. (laughs) You know, changing your body doesn't change who you are. Your body is incidental in determining who you are. Your feelings determine who you are. What's inside you determines who you are. There is a disconnection between the physical body and the soul or the spirit or the inner inner self. Now, by and large, our, our society doesn't push back against this idea. In fact, we find it quite attractive, even though there are incredible inconsistencies in having this disconnection between the physical and the inner. For instance, you now if a husband has an affair and he defends himself by saying, listen, it was just physical, it didn't mean anything, we don't buy it. We don't take that as an excuse. It's not just physical. Or if there's a guy, a patient in a coma, And whilst he's in a coma, he gets abused. You know, he doesn't know it, he might not remember it, but we know it's wrong. Because any act that you do against someone's body, you do against their person. When somebody hurts you, it's not like they've just damaged your phone or your car, it's a violation against you. Now, in our culture, we often use the word soul as the inner life as distinct from our physical bodies and yet the Bible uses the word soul in a more all-encompassing manner. Yeah, it's not just our sense of spirit or soul but it is our physical selves. It incorporates the body along with everything else that makes up who you are which means your body is not just an accessory to who you are. It's not incidental, it's not just a receptacle, it's not just a piece of Tupperware, so to speak. It's part of who you are and therefore it is you. We can't properly understand ourselves apart from our body. In Genesis 2, we're told that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and the man became a living being. Now, notice how Adam was made because this is like the opposite. Of how we normally consider ourselves. God doesn't first create a soul called Adam and then find the nearest sort of inanimate body and put that soul in there. No, God starts with matter. He forms the body and into it he breathes life, which means your body is not fundamentally a soul that's been, you know, pushed into a lump of flesh. My point, point, and I know I've been laboring this a little bit, is (laughs) there is a givenness to your body. God created you. You were made for a purpose, you were made in His image. Your body is intrinsic to who you are. It's not simply a vehicle that the real you drives around in. You're created for a purpose in how you relate to Him and others and how you understand yourself. Now, if we're made in God's image to reflect Him, to, to mirror Him to the world around us, even a moment's self-reflection will know, we don't always do this as we ought. We mirror all sorts of other things that we chase after in life to the world around us. We, we are broken image bearers. The Apostle Paul says to the Colossians, the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Do you see what Paul is saying? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You read the Gospels and you recognise that Jesus is the only person in all of history who perfectly imaged God, who perfectly reflected His glory. But you see what this means? We look for God in all sorts of things that aren't God. We try to find God in all sorts of things that God has created but can't possibly compete with Him. Therefore, how are we going to start looking at God properly? How are we going to start mirroring His image properly and reflecting to Him? How are we going to win our heart, how are we going to turn our heart back to God so that we're not always focused on what we're looking like or how we're doing or how people are treating us or what I'm achieving or whether somebody loves me or not? How am I going to have my heart turned back to God so that I look at His beauty and therefore image His glory to the world around me? Well, it's by looking at Jesus. It's by gazing at His beauty of who He is and what He has done. The One who perfectly imaged God. The One through whom all things were created. It's looking at what He has done for you. The One who made peace for us by shedding His blood on the cross. It's in beholding the beauty of Jesus, in gazing at Him, that slowly, gradually, joyfully, we better image the Creator who has formed us for that purpose. It's in looking at Jesus that we find our ultimate value because Jesus was prepared to become human for us. You'll never have a greater expression, a greater declaration of human dignity that God became human, dwelt amongst us and ultimately became breakable, taking our sins upon ourselves You'll never find a greater declaration of human worth and dignity of God's love for us. And therefore, it's as we look at Jesus more and more that we find our purpose, our joy. We mirror the image of God who's created us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we do um, thank you that you have made us, that you have made us in, in your image that you have made us to be in a relationship with you and to and to mirror your glory uh, to the world around us but we confess lord we, we don't always do that as we ought uh, we pursue our work for our own agenda we, we pursue relationships according to our own agenda uh, and we ask for, for, for your forgiveness lord give us a right understanding of you and ourselves guide us by your spirit so that we would rightly use the bodies that you have given us for your purposes and your glory. We ask these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.